Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry in for Tanzina Vega. Today, we begin with American politics. Joe Biden has been president and the 117th Congress has been at work for six months. Even with COVID-19 vaccinations slowing in recent weeks, the country is still averaging around a half million shots in arms daily. And even with the rocky reality of higher than average inflation, the economy has added jobs and unemployment has leveled. And real American families can point to real dollars in their bank accounts thanks to the American Rescue Plan. But it hasn't all been one long Juneteenth cookout for the Democrats. Senate Republicans successfully blocked federal action on voting rights and have stalled any action on Democrats' big infrastructure plan. And Republicans in state houses across the country have successfully charted a culturally conservative course for public policy that has dominated the national agenda. With just over 470 days until the midterm elections, Democrats and Republicans from Dogcatcher to Senate are starting to ramp up their re-election apparatus. And the question on everyone's mind, so how's this strategy working for us? It's a question we'll be asking both parties over the next two weeks. And this week, we start with the Democrats. Joining me now is Joel Payne, Democratic strategist, former aide to Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign, and host of the podcast, Here Comes the Pain. Welcome back to The Takeaway, Joel. Thank you so much, Melissa. (laughs) And also here, Maya King, politics reporter at Politico. Welcome back, Maya. Hi, Melissa. Thanks for having me. I feel like we need to get you a podcast with a snappy title like that. (laughs) (laughs) So, Joel, let me start with you. Um... Where did the Biden administration hope to be at this point six months in? And and how close have they managed to get to that goal? Melissa, it's a good question. I think the president and his team have to feel pretty good about where they are. As you alluded to in your open, um, they, they passed the rescue plan. There's dollars in the pockets of millions of Americans. There's shots in arm. That was the fire that was the, the, the thing that was on fire when they first took over in January and they had to address that and they did. Now comes the hard part. Now comes the part where really uh, governing becomes a challenge. Um, This infrastructure package is really challenging the president. It looks like they are um, rebooting their efforts to sell it publicly, really kind of positioning it as a tax fairness measure. And I think something that was interesting to me was this week, Mitch McConnell hinted that Republicans really aren't planning on helping the president in any way whatsoever. Mitch McConnell talked about how if Democrats wanted to pass the debt limit increase, they were going to have to do it on their own. That essentially tells me if Republicans are unwilling to step in and help out there, there's probably nothing Republicans are really going to work with Democrats and the president on. So I think that's the state of play as, as I look at it, 30,000 feet up. Okay, so, so that's helpful. Maya, let me come to you on that final point that Joel just made um, about kind of Republican strategy here. They were quite explicit, Senate Republicans were quite explicit during President Obama's first term that their goal was to ensure he did not win re-election. And it must be said that congressional Democrats were pretty explicit about that same goal relative to President Trump. I mean, after all, they did impeach him not once, but twice. But I'm wondering, it hasn't quite sounded to me, just in terms of public rhetoric, as though Republicans in the Senate or in the House are currently like seeing their main goal as massive resistance to President Biden. But now I'm hearing from Joel that maybe that's precisely what it is. 
Well, I think Republicans' end game and everything that they do right now is to win elections. And they're looking ahead to 2022 and making this calculus of what's going to play well with the base and what's going to give us something to talk about. And I think that really their strategy here is not only to kind of hobble uh, the White House's agenda, but also to radicalize it in many ways. And with all of this talk on the Hill about spending and how much is going to be spent on things like infrastructure, I mean, it's really given Republicans a perfect opening to say this is either too much money or it's not going towards the things that will actually help. And then on the other side of that, of course, you have this heavy lean into culture war issues, wedge issues that, again, do play very well with the base um, and give Republicans really salient talking points to kind of distract from the fact that um, on the Hill, there's a lot of gridlock and not too much is getting done um, on the right in the way of concrete policy, which, of course, also owes to the fact that they don't have majorities in the House. So all of these things kind of play into the fact that they have all Republicans have been very clear about what they'd like to see happen in 2022. And they've repeatedly said, especially Kevin McCarthy, uh, they've expressed a number, a lot of op- optimism about their their chances of taking back the House and also the Senate. So I think a lot of this just plays into that that final end game here of taking back control of Washington. So my, I want to I want to be sure I understand one of the points you made. So you talked about radicalizing um, the president's uh, agenda. Do, do you mean discursively, in other words, taking the policies as they already are and presenting them in a way that seems more radical, or do you mean actually sort of pushing the president to take a more progressive, more leftist position, which might um, feel radical to particularly maybe to midterm voters? Well, I think it's more the former, really. Like I think about the the stimulus bill that we saw passed almost immediately after Joe Biden took office. A lot of what you heard from Republicans there was that this is way too expensive. This is spending on things that doesn't that don't actually uh, matter in the end, and that it's just sort of a radical left agenda. I think further down the ticket, though, you start to see more of what you mentioned, um, especially on the state level with conversations um, that that many state House Democrats are trying to have around policies that they want to pass a bit closer to home. It's really easy there, I think, for Republicans to say that this is a much more radical agenda. And I think that scares voters or at least plays better uh, with base voters on both sides. So, Joel, it's interesting to think of um, an administration who right now has described its top two priorities as infrastructure and voting rights as having a radical agenda. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, I although it may not be sort of where I stand ideologically, I get how one could think of, for example, expansion of affordable health care as, you know, more progressive or more radical, but like building bridges and making people vote. <laughs> it, how does that get um, strategically, right, crafted for the Biden administration in a way that can feel sufficiently exciting to push back against the sort of language of radicalization coming out of the right? Well, Melissa, I think what we're hearing is kind of the yin and yang of messaging, whereas Republicans might call it radical. I mean, the public opinion numbers just do not measure that out. Um, you know, they've called uh, President Biden kind of either somewhat derisively or somewhat ironically the 60 percent president, because it seems like all the issues that he is pushing and that he has gotten behind have wide support in the country, at least three and five. You talked about voting rights, infrastructure, even pieces that failed earlier, like the minimum wage um, increase that um, Democrats have tried to push for. These items on the president's agenda um, are said to be progressive, but they're really just popular. And actually, I think that's an interesting subplot of these first six months is that President Biden has had the attitude of kind of a deal making moderate. 
Um, he has presented himself as someone who can reach across the aisle, and that's great. But he's really governed pretty progressively. And I think that has vexed and frustrated a lot of Republicans that the president has been able to package this pretty progressive agenda um, in a way that's palatable to the American people. So so that's interesting, because precisely what I was, I was about to push you on here a little bit, Joel, is should he be pushing farther um, towards progressivism or towards left? And I, I mean this not from a should he good, bad, but from a strategic sense. Um, is there a strategic benefit, particularly for House members going into the reelection, to be able to say, you know, to point to things that are um, perhaps even more progressive than what the administration has already been able to accomplish? So to your point, the piece that the president has gotten pushed on regarding strategy most recently is voting rights. And while he certainly is on the right side of that issue, I think a lot of activists and a or lot the of the left faith- side of that issue, as the case may be on the correct side of that issue is what I meant. <laughs> That's right. Good correction there. But a lot of activists and a lot of base Democrats do not feel like the president and his administration have the appropriate strategy to get it passed. They want him to get rid of the filibuster. They want him to get Joe Biden and Kristen Sinema on board with kind of blowing it up in order to um, to, to get voting rights passed, to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the For the People Act. And the president has been yet to do that. There's a thought that maybe the president can accomplish it through reconciliation. Um, I think they're working with the parliamentarian to see if that could pass, if that's possible, because it has to relate to the budget. But the president right now is being challenged by his base in a way that he has not been so far in his administration. Um, I think he's been able to keep progressives and Democrats at bay and, and keep the infighting down. You're at the six month mark where now that honeymoon is officially over. So I think it'll be interesting to see how the president's team pivot. So, Maya, when Joel talks there about using a process of reconciliation, that is, that's a term of art quite specifically about um, how a set of congressional actions can happen, how bills become laws. But I'm wondering if that language of reconciliation might also be descriptive of a kind of strategic approach um, within the White House and within the broader administration. Um, Merrick Garland, our, our attorney general this week, made a little bit of news, mostly by declining to make a little bit of news, right, by saying that he didn't want to pursue some of the ways that the Department of Justice had been politicized under President Trump um, and saying, quote, I don't want the department's career people to think that a new group comes in and immediately applies a political lens. And I'm wondering if that sort of, we don't look back, we go forward, we're trying to reach across, we're doing the work of reconciliation. Is that uh, both a winning strategy? And is it simply from the health of democracy perspective, the right strategy? Well, I, I, I think that the White House has really tried, and it's in many ways to to employ some kind of a an inside government strategy to to try to push this through. But, you know, one thing that I'll point out, even to Joel's point, is that um, President Biden, when he was running, had really used voting rights as one of his key issues, something that he said would be a priority of his of his administration. And he also said that he is a Senate guy, that he understands the inner workings of the Senate and that he would use those connections that he's made as a former senator to try to push through some of this legislation. And I think that that's really what is complicating some of this because that's not quite crystallizing on voting rights in particular. Um, You know, whether or not Democrats are able to use reconciliation to push it through, I'm not particularly optimistic um, that 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 will be what does it. Um, And I think we've seen reporting even this even this week to suggest that um, 
you know, Democrats are starting to say, well, we can organize around this. We can actually try to fight um, and, and use a strategy on the ground with grassroots activists to try to circumvent some of these laws. And even activists are saying that that's not enough either. So I think that really more than anything else, um, this is going to it's going to be incumbent on this White House to really have these tough conversations with members of the base and try to figure out what what the solutions are here beyond just uh, talking points and 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 fiery speeches um, around around the filibuster in particular. Joel, do you want to weigh in on on either filibuster or that sort of reconciliation approach? Really quickly, I think Maya's point about the president talking about registering voters and things of that nature. I've heard from a lot of activists I've talked to, hey, we did the hard work. We showed up in November. We risk our lives in the middle of a pandemic. I don't think a lot of the folks that are part of that president's vaunted base, I don't think they want to hear that. I think they're saying you've got the Senate, you've got the House, you've got the White House. It's time to act. Um, And that's the tension that we're looking at in Washington right now. Maya, um, as we're kind of looking down the card of the uh, congressional Democrats, where are the places where um, folks are really asking for help on their strategy? I'm thinking here, for example, Lauren Underwood in Illinois, but um, are there other folks who are like, hey, we need some particular things to happen in Washington to ensure that we can get reelected back home? Well, I think uh, to your earlier point, our earlier conversation, the place that I'll really be looking at in the next 18 months is Georgia. I think you see there uh, the the coming together of several different issues and many different uh, top line items that have kind of dominated conversation, especially in Democratic circles. Of course, you have activists on the ground there who absolutely have been doing the work for the last uh, several years now to register voters and turn out voters. And that, of course, proved successful in flipping the state blue. And now they're saying we need that help again from Washington and from the White House to be able to hold that blue, hold our, our blue status um, and send one Raphael Warnock back to the Senate and perhaps put Stacey Abrams um, in the governor's mansion um, if it is indeed a rematch between her and Brian Kemp. And I think the South, honestly, as a region, is going to be a place just really to keep our eyes on because you're seeing several movements that are very similar to what we saw in Georgia take place in states like North Carolina, where a number of folks, including some progressives, are aiming to, if not get on the ballot, um, register more voters and turn out more rural voters. I think Texas is another place where we see this, especially in the conversation around voting rights. And so that's really where a lot of my focus will be on um, and where I think we'll We'll see some new storylines as they relate to 2022 and perhaps some trends that haven't really been noticed by us Beltway talkers um, (laughs) around politics in the past. So Maya, you can't see me, but right now I am doing a whole dance in my um, in my office as I'm as I'm on the the radio with you here because yes, the South, the South, the South, the South, and you said of course my state where I'm living right now, North Carolina, which is you know kind of having some feelings about the fact that we were the great purple swing state, and then you know Georgia kind of you know took all the thunder and came forward. But Joel, the only way you can talk about the South, the South, the South, and turning these purple states blue in midterms or in a general election is black voters, Latino voters, um, and other voters who it's not completely clear to me that this Biden administration is strategically connecting with right now. What are your thoughts? I think that's a real um, good point to bring up, Melissa, and you know, particularly pursuant to the c- discussion we had a little bit earlier about voting rights. Um, 
one thing that I've been looking at, and I kind of nerd out, so Melissa, you might appreciate this. If you really kind of compared this midterm cycle, most midterm cycles, you expect the end party, the party in power to lose power. The last time that didn't happen was 2002. Um, President George W. Bush, it was right after 9-11. So you had a national crisis of unprecedented measure. And you really didn't see that kind of sea change in politics. And I actually think, while, of course, we don't want to repeat the scenario that led to that moment, I think that is the scenario that the Biden White House is looking at. Do you have a president that is not polarizing, that does not um, stratify people and to go into their corners? Well, President Biden has tried to lead across the aisle, and he's somebody that Democrats up and down the ballot, coast to coast, across the country, can campaign with. And that's something that I'm going to be looking for is, is Joe Biden going to remain the most popular Democrat in America? Right now, he is. Um, we'll see if in 12 months, 15 months, 18 months, that's still the case. But um, look at that comparison between 2002 and 2022. Um, and I think um, that might be instructive as to what to expect in the next midterm cycle. So it's a great point, um, th this idea that, that part of what you have to do is not only turn out your own base, but hopefully not overly activate the other base, right? Don't don't be sort of a symbol to be run against, right? Because you're not actually on the ticket, right? So you don't want to create um, the good enemy that also creates a circumstance for the, you know, for the other party to, to really show up and and uh, vote against you. But, but I'm wondering the ways, uh, Maya, that at the state level, uh, Republicans have done an extremely good job at setting an agenda that doesn't really have anything at all to do with the D.C. Beltway, right? These kind of cultural discourse around critical race theory, around, uh, you know, trans young people, things that just really are not being taken up in Congress, but they're using it to set state agendas. Yeah, absolutely. I think one place we see that um, in particular is in Virginia, which actually is having it is an election year in Virginia. They will elect their governor uh, in November. And you see um, uh, Republicans there really, really playing up these topics that you mentioned, like critical race theory, like trans students um, and in sports and using bathrooms. I mean, these are the things that they believe will be able to swing an election, particularly in the very vote-rich Northern Virginia counties where public schools and public educations are some of the best in the country. Um, so Virginia may be in some ways an outlier in that way, but I think at the same time, what you are seeing there is, uh, is a test run, especially for the right, and figuring out how to leverage these wedge issues. And if they are successful, even if that means they've been able to take back their majority in the state house. Um, or even send a Republican to uh, the governor's mansion, which looking at polling uh, does not, it's its really a toss up right now. But I think if they're able to make any inroads in, in any way, they'll be able to take the lessons learned there and apply them to similar states across the country where you see a lot of this rhetoric starting to play, especially um, in suburban counties. Uh, that language of suburbs. L let me come to you on that, Joel, because right now, again, if you're nerding out on data, everybody's talking about the suburbs. Any expectations there? Well, I think both Democrats and Republicans understand that the suburbs are where it's at. And I actually think, you know, something we won't have a chance to talk about here is it's we've talked a lot about Joe Biden and Democrats, but really it's Republicans. Do they have a unified message against the president? And can they get all of their candidates to speak with one voice and be disciplined in an era where Donald Trump is on one end of the Republican Party and you have a lot of establishment Republicans who want to move on on the other end? Um, can they um, untangle those wires? Again, that'll be something we'll be, have to keep an eye on over the next few weeks and months. 
Yeah, and it's a great question of are all politics local or do you need a national strategy for local elections? Ooh, all the good stuff. Joel Payne is a Democratic strategist, former aide to Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign and host of the podcast, Here Comes the Pain. Maya King is politics reporter at Politico. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks, Three things to know about older Americans. First, they are the Americans most likely to show up and vote. The senior crowd consistently puts up turnout rates hovering around 65%. Second, older Americans are more likely than younger folk to be reliable Republican voters. Data from the Pew Research Center show that a majority of Republican voters are over 50 and a full quarter are over 65. And finally, nearly 80% of those Americans over age 65 are fully vaccinated. Nearly 90% have had at least one dose. The takeaway? Older Americans are reliable voters, Republican voters, and vaccinated voters. So maybe that's why there seems to be a discernible softening in the anti-vax views in conservative media. With me now to discuss is David Graham, staff writer at The Atlantic. David, welcome to The Takeaway. Thanks for having me. So talk to me about this shift that we're seeing right now in conservative media. Well, there's something very strange going on really just this week. Um, you know, over the course of a few, day, a few days, several prominent people came out and, and gave an endorsement of vaccines or talked about getting their own vaccine. We saw several Fox hosts, uh, Steve Ducey, who's talked about this before, but was reemphasizing it. Sean Hannity seemed to endorse vaccines. Uh, we saw Steve Scalise, uh, the, the House Minority Whip, announced after months of kind of holding out that he, uh, he had gotten his vaccine. Um, so there is some sort of there's something going on this week, and it's not totally clear why, but uh, but it's real. Do you think it's political, it's ideological, or that it's just a public health issue? Well, I think there must be some of this that's connected to Delta. You know, a, a lot of people are um, concerned about Delta. We see rising concern, you know, across the political spectrum, and I think that's driving some of this. Scalise cited that. Even so, the uniformity of the response on Fox, which also released a, a short PSA endorsing vaccines, almost suggests that there's some sort of worry that they need to be taking this more seriously. Um, some Republicans have been serious about vaccines for a long time, uh, but it's this particular hive that is doing something different, and, and I don't totally know why. What about the idea that we're seeing it in media, but it's also related, you know, obviously you started naming members of Congress there, for example, with, you know, with Steve Scalise. I'm wondering about the fact that we're seeing them happen at the same time. Any sense that one is causal? In other words, that um, the conservative media is softening and therefore Republican politicians, or maybe that Republican politicians are softening and therefore conservative media? Um, if I had to guess, I would say probably it involves the media softening first. You know, a lot of conservative politicians, I think, follow where the media goes and it, it sort of limbs what they feel like they're comfortable doing. Um, but they also, you know, they exist in the same ecosystem and, and there is a little bit of a feedback loop. So they tend to be connected. Does it make a difference when trusted leaders, whether media or Congress, get vaccines, say it's okay to get vaccines? Do we have data about whether or not those kind of signals actually make a difference in the willingness of individuals to get those vaccines? Yeah, we know that these kind of trusted messengers are the best people to do it. And and that ranges across, you know, trusted messengers can be your doctor, they can be your pharmacist, they can be a political leader or, or media personality who you trust. You know, how much this matters, I think, is a little bit up for debate and, and we'll have to wait and see because so many of these personalities and because so much of conservative media and, and Republican politicians have been spreading a skepticism, not always 
outright skepticism, but sometimes a just asking questions sort of argument. Um, the question is whether at this point it's it's too late or whether it will have much effect. Also, even if people go out when they hear this and get their vaccines this week or, or in the next week or two, it obviously takes a while for them to get vaccinated, which means there's a little bit of delay before we might see that dampening the effects of uh, Delta spread. David Graham is a staff writer at The Atlantic. David, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radio Lab adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, everyone, for the rest of this hour, we're going to be talking about our veterans who are returning home from the war in Afghanistan, because the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan will be complete as of August 31st. But coming home is not the end of combat for many of our servicemen and women. Many veterans of the war in Afghanistan will face physical, emotional, and financial battles for decades. To get some perspective on this, the takeaway spoke to a veteran of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan a Marine who knows all too well what it's like to return home. My name is Timothy Kudo. I am a Marine veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, I think the the feelings that I've had since President Biden announced that the war was going to come to an end this year have been incredibly mixed. At first, you know, there was a, a kind of a twofold response. One was relief that this war that has taken so many American and Afghan lives is finally coming to an end. Um, after so much, you know, kind of senseless tragedy. But on the other hand, you know, given what I experienced over there, the the men in my unit who died over there, uh, there's a tremendous sense that, you know, everything that we did was in vain. Tim did his best to try to explain to us what he says is simply inexplicable. When you return and, you know, you've killed people and you've seen men die, um, you've lost people under your command, you realize that for the rest of your life, you're never going to be the same. And for Tim, it's the seemingly never-ending nature of America's war in Afghanistan that has been so deeply frustrating. When I got back from Afghanistan, you know, it was around 2011. Um, shortly thereafter, Osama bin Laden was killed. And, you know, that created a, a huge mix of emotions, given that kind of my impetus for joining um, and becoming interested in the military was 9-11. But I realized that the war that I had just come back from was still going on and was going to go on for, for quite a while. You know, we hoped that it would end then, but it didn't, obviously. And 10 years later, we're still fighting it. For those who serve, the cost of war cannot be calculated on a spreadsheet. It's very difficult to convey that to someone. Um, you know, your friends and family, they don't understand it. They'll never understand it. They expect you to be that person that you thought you would be able to be when you come back. And when you're not, you have a choice to make of kind of either withdrawing, kind of disconnecting from everyone in your life or frankly, lying to them. And I think that what you end up doing, what most people end up doing is kind of living in that lie a little bit. Um, and it creates a distance that they're forced to live in for the rest of their lives. And so I think even now, you know, it's not something that I could talk about or explain to anyone. Um, even if I did talk about it, they would never understand. And that creates an incredibly difficult place to live your life. And, you know, unfortunately, that's just the way it is. That's the, that's what war costs for the person who fights in it. 
And the reality for Tim is this. There is a kind of moral and spiritual damage that war does that cannot be dealt with by the government or by anyone else in your life. That was Tim Kudo, Marine veteran of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. We appreciate his service and we are so grateful for his words. We asked you out there what words of thanks or encouragement you have for veterans returning from Afghanistan. Hi, this is Mary from Philadelphia. Thank you for your courageous and persistent service in a thankless and perilous endeavor. Welcome home. Hi, my name is Leah. I'm calling from Waynesburg, Ohio. And for the veterans who are returning from Afghanistan, I hope that when you come back, you be the person that you imagined yourself fighting for. The person who seeks justice, the person who upholds constitutionality, and make your values known to the American people. You've been so politicized while you were deployed. Make sure that you're telling us the things that you really value. Hi, I'm Ronnie from Northern Wisconsin. I want to say thank you for your personal and family sacrifices that were made while you were overseas. I hope that your service to this country and the support of our military provide for a better place for mankind, not only in Afghanistan, but for the world. I'm Deborah from Brooklyn, New York. I cannot possibly thank our veterans enough for their sacrifices in carrying out U.S. policy in Afghanistan. I'm a Vietnam-era vet, so I really understand on a personal level the sacrifices that not only the veterans, but their families make on behalf of a country that very often seems indifferent to them. Saying thank you for your service is not enough. We really have to do more. Hi, this is Colleen from Portland, Oregon. And I would like to promise the veterans that we will try to do a better job of taking care of you than previous generations have. You deserve more, and we're going to break the habit that America has of just leaving our veterans out to dry as soon as they're home. We love you, and we're going to take care of you. As the final soldiers, sailors, Marines, and airmen arrive home from Afghanistan, our nation faces the question of how we can keep the promise that Colleen from Portland just expressed in her call. How can we do a better job for our veterans? With me now to discuss is Representative Colin Allred, the Democrat from Texas and a member of the House Committee on Veterans Affairs and Foreign Affairs. Welcome back to The Takeaway. Thanks so much for having me. And Jeremy Butler, CEO of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America and a veteran of the U.S. Navy and still a member of the Reserves. Thank you for being here, Jeremy. Thank you, Melissa. Congressman, I want to start with you. You're a member of the House Committee on Veterans Affairs. What work are you doing right now to to keep that promise that we heard to do a better job? Well, you know, I think that's a it's a great sentiment. And it's one that uh, a promise that we do have to keep as a nation uh, to the folks who we deployed uh, to Afghanistan, who did complete their mission, which was to prevent uh, any attacks on the homeland that uh, we saw uh, on 9-11. And we know that our veterans who've been deployed to Afghanistan have faced prolonged toxic exposure of types, uh, varying types. I saw that myself when I was in Afghanistan, just the air quality in Kabul itself is toxic. It's like breathing uh, out of an exhaust pipe. 
uh, and the post 9-11 generation of our veterans who've been deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, we are seeing much higher rates of suicide and, and mental health challenges associated with their service. Uh, so and the Veterans Affairs Committee, we've worked to try and address those specific things. And we just recently passed out of our committee a package of bills that will recognize toxic exposure as a cost of war. And instead of placing the burden on the veteran to prove that their exposure and their injury related with, to that uh, was caused by their service, we're going to create a presumption uh, that that service uh, led to that injury and, and to that uh, disease, if that's what they're dealing with. And we also passed at the end of the last congressional term, uh, the Hannon Act, to provide uh, more resources and focus within the VA health system to address mental health, uh, to try and help us address the tragedy of us losing uh, 17 veterans a day to suicide. There's more to do. Uh, I'm working here locally in my community. We just got a new uh, VA hospital opened uh, last year here in my community that I worked very hard on, having a, a hospital that had uh, been basically abandoned, turned into a VA facility. Uh, but we, we are certainly aware of the commitment and, and our committee, we're going to do everything we can to try and meet it. Jeremy, uh, according to the VA, this new generation of veterans, um, and, and this is a quote, characterized by an increased number of reservists and National Guard members who served in combat zones, a higher proportion of women, and a different pattern of injuries, such as multiple injuries from explosions than were seen among veterans of previous wars. Jeremy, can you help us to understand how those kinds of differences um, might mean that there are, are different needs post-combat for this new generation of veterans? Absolutely. And I'll also, before I start, just uh, applaud and, and double down on everything that Representative Allred just said. Um, we work very closely with the House and Senate VA committees and and especially on all those issues that he just discussed. Those are top priorities for, for my organization and all the members we represent. But but you're absolutely right. The, the post 9-11 conflicts have ushered in some new issues, uh, but also sort of resurfaced some of the uh, existing issues that veterans have been dealing with for a long time in terms of things like the invisible wounds of war that we talk about as being some of the signature issues coming out of the post 9-11 conflicts. We are talking about things that people can't necessarily see. And that's like the traumatic brain injuries that come from being around so many concussive forces, not just things like IEDs, uh, but also just repeated gunshots, uh, explosive charges that are used in training and real world missions uh, by our forces. So you've got that. But then that carries over to things like post-traumatic stress, uh, untreated mental health care issues uh, that can be caused by these issues some of which we know have existed for our Vietnam era veterans as well, for example. And so there's ultimately what we really need to be doing is just to make sure that the VA is is ready and prepared to take care of all these things. In addition to the fact that we have many more women uh, serving in combat uh, and on the front lines today. And so we need to make sure that uh, our, our VA facilities uh, are able and ready to accept them, to care for them and to give them the resources that they need. And Congressman, is the VA ready? Are the resources there and available? Well, we are certainly working hard to make the VA ready. And I think that the VA health system has made uh, tremendous strides in recent years trying to modernize uh, some of the uh, technology that they use. Uh, we're putting a lot of money into facilities. We did that uh, in the American Rescue Plan, and we'll continue to do that uh, going forward. We are doing things like the, the Blue Water Sailors Act, uh, which referenced the v Vietnam era veterans uh, faced exposures to things like Agent Orange that was previously a difficult thing for them to try and uh, get benefits and, and covered for. We've now removed that barrier. We're trying to do the same thing uh, for our veterans of the post-9-11 conflicts. 
But there's always more to do. And we also have to recognize uh, the VA is an enormous bureaucracy. It's the largest integrated healthcare system in the country uh, on, the, on the VA healthcare side. And so there, there's going to be a continuing uh, effort to try and make it more efficient and to try and reduce wait times uh, to try and make sure that we are being more proactive. Um, but, you know, as I'm sure you know, anyone who has served would tell you, we have to do more also on the DOD side when our folks are transitioning out of service to make sure they're aware of what the benefits uh, that are available to them are, uh, because so many of our veterans uh, don't know uh, what uh, benefits are available to them. And we have to do more on the VA side to do that outreach, but we also have to capture while we have them still uh, within DOD, uh, make sure that we're educating them uh, on their way out. So, Jeremy, I want to talk a little bit about politics. This is typically our politics show, um, and we've been talking about politics earlier in the show. But it is dicey business to talk politics in the context of military service and our veterans. We don't want to turn um, veterans affairs into a, a question of a partisan political football. And yet we want vets you know, to be registered to vote, to be speaking in their many diverse voices about what they want. How do we do politics in a reasonable, responsible, nonpartisan way on behalf of veterans so that veterans can do it for themselves? No, that's a great question, and I appreciate it. Now, I'll sort of say two things. One, uh, I give a lot of credit to the House and Senate Veteran Affairs Committees, uh, of which Representative Allred is on, because it is one of the few places, I think, within Congress where you'll see real bipartisan uh, working together to make sure that we're taking care of our veterans. And so it's, it's, it's part of a pleasure of my job is to get to work with folks on both sides of the aisle uh, within the House and Senate VA committees, because they really do see it that way. They see it as a nonpartisan issue where we really just need to take care of our veterans. It's not to say that partisan politics doesn't come into it. And certainly when you start talking about individual veterans, everyone has a very different voice. You mentioned it, and I think it's worth repeating because a lot of people, uh, especially those that don't have a connection to the military veteran community, don't realize how diverse the military and then therefore by extension, the veteran community is. It very, it really is a very diverse uh, group of individuals um, from both sides of the aisle to include independents. Um, and so I think understanding that and realizing that anytime you have someone that says, you know, they're doing X, Y, and Z for the veterans, or they're doing this for the military, or, you know, I'm taking this stance because of the, the military, they have to understand that it's a very broad and, and diverse uh, community. And we need to let veterans speak for themselves because they often are. There's a lot of groups like mine and many others where we spend time on Capitol Hill uh, doing things like encouraging members of Congress to to connect with the veterans in their community, hear firsthand from them uh, about the issues that they're facing, because it really is a broad uh, range of issues. Uh, we do encourage veterans to get out and vote uh, in a nonpartisan way. And many veterans do have a wide range uh, of feelings on, on different issues. And I think what's most important is to let the veterans speak for themselves. Don't let members of Congress say that they're necessarily doing this for the veterans. Question them a little bit more uh, to find out exactly what it is that they're doing and how their actions are going to directly support uh, the veteran community. Thank you so much for that, Jeremy. And, and so, Congressman, I want to come to you on that because you, um, some of these invisible needs, some of these things that end up as political footballs actually have disproportionate impact on veterans. So, uh, you know, I work with a diaper bank here in North Carolina. It's kind of I have a passion for diapers. 
And I was so shocked to learn that it is our military families and our veterans families who have some of the highest diaper need, some of the greatest um, poverty rates in our in our state here in North Carolina. And I suppose I was a bit naive um, that those kinds of sort of day-to-day needs are so intense for so many members of our military and of our veterans. How do we address questions of housing insecurity, poverty, and even things as simple as diaper need among our military families and veterans? Well, it's such a, a good question, and it's it's a real tragedy, uh, one that uh, has concerned me for some time and, and that our, we're working on our committee, and, and it's going to take a whole-of-government approach because when you're talking about you know housing, of course, you need to have HUD involved. I used to actually work at HUD in the Obama administration. We worked very hard on trying to end uh, veterans' homelessness you know, about a third of all veterans uh, say they had trouble paying their bills in the first few years after they leave uh, their military service. And almost 30% are receiving unemployment benefits. And so you're absolutely right uh, that we have uh, enormous economic challenges for our veterans. One of the things that we've worked hard uh, to try and do both here locally and nationally in our committee uh, is to make sure that employers understand how good of employees uh, veterans are and, and how much of a benefit they can be to their companies. Uh, and so you know, the best thing to do, of course, for any person uh, who uh, is wants to make their way is to make sure they can get into a good job, get into a good career, and feel like their needs are going to be met there. And you know, corporate America has, I think, t- taken some steps uh, in, in the right direction here, but we have a lot more work to do uh, to make sure that the talents, uh, the skills that our veterans uh, developed and have uh, from their service, that those are appreciated as much as possible in civilian life. And then, of course, that we fill the gaps on the backside in, in terms of uh, when something happens, because you know, one in five veterans returning from Iraq and Afghanistan have been reported uh, with P- PTS. Uh, and so we know uh, that we're dealing with a very high percentage of folks uh, who are struggling. And so we have to provide them with the wraparound services that allow them to then uh, thrive. And that's something, of course, talking about our disabled vets uh, who are suffering from uh, you know, injuries that they received over the course of their service. So there is so much for us to do, but it has to be every single area, really, of our government to try and provide help. Uh, because I think part of the commitment to our veterans who we put in harm's way has to be that when you're done, we're going to do everything we can as a nation to not only take care of your health, Uh, but to take care of your chance to chase your version of the American dream for the rest uh, of your time. And, and, you know, I think that's an ongoing commitment. Uh, It's one that I certainly believe in. I think our committee uh, in a bipartisan way, as Jeremy said, believes in, Uh, but we know that there's a lot of work to do and there are some gaps that still have to be filled. I do think we've made some progress, but there's still much more to do. Jeremy, make this personal for me. For those of us who love and care about, are in relation with our sisters and and brothers and family members of those who have served, not all this can be done by the government. What can we do for those who are returning home? No, thank you for asking that because it's a great question and it is something that I wanted to address with uh, to add to what uh, Representative Allred was saying. All of these changes need to take place, and I think the biggest thing that everyone can do is to know how to help a veteran that's in need. A lot of our veterans might not be eligible for the VA uh, for a variety of reasons, or frankly, they might not be comfortable anymore with using the VA. They may have had a bad experience uh, and they're, they're just frustrated with the bureaucracy or whatever it might be. 
And so I think the biggest thing that everyone should know is where to send a veteran that's in need. There's a lot of resources out there. I will plug certainly just at, at a minimum IAVA's own quick reaction force. We have a 24-7 hotline, 855-91-RAPID. You can also go to our website uh, to get access. You'll get connected to a veteran uh, counselor who can help you, uh, any veteran, any era, any discharge status, uh, and their family members to connect them to the resources that they need. Uh, and, and to the point that you were making earlier, you know, three of the top five reasons veterans come to us for support are financially related. It might be housing or homelessness, unemployment, just emergency financial needs, but three of the top five are financial related. The other two are help accessing the VA and mental health problems. And so it really does reinforce the fact that uh, these are some of the key issues that our veterans are facing. And so I think really at the end of the day, the biggest thing that everyone can do uh, is know where to turn to help veterans uh, that are coming to them for help. And Jeremy, will you give us that number one more time? Absolutely. It's 855-91-RAPID. Or just go to IAVA.org and you can click on our quick reaction force and they can help you 24-7, 365 days a year. Jeremy Butler, CEO of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America and Representative Colin Allred, member of the House Committee on Veterans Affairs. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's all the politics we have for y'all today. As always, we appreciate you tuning in. But before I head out, let me give a quick shout out to the fantastic team that helps make all this radio possible. Our producers are Ethan Oberman, Lydia McMullen-Laird, Shanta Covington, and Katarina Barton. Our line producer is Jackie Martin. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Vince Fairchild is our board operator. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. And Meg Dalton is our digital editor this week. David Gable is our executive assistant. And Lee Hill is our fearless leader, the executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and this is The Takeaway. 